Hey, how's everyone doing this morning? Doing great? Cool. So good. Um, Ushers are going to come forward and uh, we're going to continue uh, worshiping with the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest visiting with us today, um, please feel no obligation to do that. But this is just a normal part of our worship. Everyone in the room said, great. So I'm going to assume that there are no Duck fans in the room today. Ooh, too soon? Yeah. Go Beavs though, right? Yes, football jokes are such low-hanging fruit up here. I love it. Hey, it's good to be with you. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I've been here for about eight years. My wife, Fallon, and I, we have four little kids. It's a pleasure to get to serve all of you and be here with you. You got to meet my friend Jamie this morning. Can we say thank you to Jamie? Yeah. Jamie's been on staff for about a year here, and she's been serving largely behind the scenes, running a program called Alpha, which we love, one of our pastors here. More so happy that she's here. She's here with her husband, Alex, who also has an amazing name. Am I right? And uh, we're just so glad you guys are here. Thanks for being such a great um, part of our community. So excited you're here. Hey, we have some high school students in the room. Super cool. Yee? What up, high school students? You know what? When I was in high school, I never knew how I fit in the church. I never did. I uh, skipped youth group um, because I didn't know how I fit there either. And I ended up sitting in this room, not this room, but a room like this uh, with my parents, wondering how any of this landed. And I'll tell you, you may pick up 40% of what I'm about to say today, but I hope that 40% helps you navigate your life um, in following Jesus. So we're all glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Yeah. My friend, Steve, he told me this week that we live in a world where hope and meaning are in short supply. Can anyone say amen? Amen. Um, we're going to look at a passage of scripture today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to continue a series out of the letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about hope. Um, but most specifically, we're going to talk about hope through the lens of three things. The resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of believers, and the renewal of all things, heaven and earth. Just those small three things. Jamie said our service would be done in 60 minutes. Good luck. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. This is how it starts. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This section of scripture starts by addressing people, brothers and sisters. Those are Paul's words. I think it can be easy to forget that we're not just studying an ancient book that was written 2,000 years ago. We're actually studying an ancient letter written from one person who deeply loved this small group of Christians in an ancient city called Corinth, who were wrestling with real things. They were real people living in a real time, struggling with very, very real things. And he wants to make it clear right off the bat that the gospel is what has saved them. The word saved is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's the word sozo, sozo. 
And it literally means delivered. When I hear the word saved, it sounds like Christianese a little bit. Something maybe you cross stitch and you put in a bathroom at your grandma's house. Something along those lines. But genuinely, this is a word that means you have been delivered. So the question is, what have I been delivered from? And where have I been delivered to? That's a natural question from this. So in order to understand the answer to that question, you have to also understand that as a Christian, we live with a kind of worldview, which means we live with a way of seeing the world. And not just the world we live in today, but all of human history. We see the human history is unfolding in this sort of linear line of a creation, a start, where God spoke and a universe came into being. And in the middle of that beautiful place called Earth and Eden, which literally meant the Garden of Delight, he placed humanity. And he gave them dominion to rule and to reign over all of his creation. And he gave them the ability to choose, choose to follow him, love him, trust him, or not. Humanity, you may know the story because you've read the news. <laughs> you've scrolled through your feed. Humanity has chosen time and time again not to obey, not to listen, not to follow, but to go their own way. To judge what is good and evil on their own terms, not what is on God's. And that often ends in disaster. The original time this happened is in a story called The Fall. Genesis chapter three, not long after God created us good in Eden, in paradise with good things and a charge to rule and reign over creation, we fall. This is the story of the Bible, creation, fall, but it doesn't just end there. Right away, there's whispers of a plan, of a story that God is going to intervene on our behalf and he's going to deliver us from this brokenness. He's going to sozo us, deliver us out of this brokenness. That's what we call redemption, delivered out of something. But the promise doesn't just end there. It's not just that we're going to be delivered out of the chaos and the brokenness and the endless cycle of death and pain of this world. It's that we will be delivered to something. One day, long in the future, promised that there will be a renewal of everything that has once been, that is broken. Everything that once was right will be made right once again. This is the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal of all things. So when Paul says this is the gospel that you have been saved, he is saying you have been delivered. Today, you have been delivered out of something and you will be delivered to something. Now he starts here and obviously it's confusing because it's like, well, yeah, but I don't feel delivered. <laughs> I mean, look at my own struggles, my own pain, my, the world around me. It doesn't feel like all the time we've been delivered out of this thing. And so Paul is going to spend the next 57, 58 verses unpacking what it looks like to live in the now and anticipate what's to come that's not yet. Paul says in verse two, hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Did I mention again that these were real people that faced real challenges, real struggles? Some of them are different. 2,000 years ago, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So if your pipe breaks, that's tough. They didn't have that to deal with, right? They had a whole set of other issues to deal with. Am I right? But some of them are familiar. It's not too far after this letter is written, that the Roman Empire would be ravaged by a 14-year global pandemic. 
And the church would have to know, how do we navigate through this? Same questions we're facing today, they faced thousands of years ago. Some are different, some are the same. But they're real people with real struggle. And it's important to read this and remember that, that this is a letter, a correspondence between somebody who loves them and cares for them and a group of people that are struggling. And why that's important to understand is because it makes them human, right? He's writing to them in the midst of their struggle. He never anticipates, and neither does Jesus, that we will have a life free of struggle because we live in the now and not yet. N.T. Wright summarizes chapter 15 in a beautiful and um, in a way that I could never do it. So I decided we just put it on the screen and I'd read it to you. He says this, Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to all of those things. But at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world. An event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will thank God never be the same again either. That is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Amen. Real people, real questions in a real place. Their questions were about the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 13 says this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Their questions about something that seems implausible, unrealistic. A dead man came back to life. That's the story here that they're wrestling with. And so they have questions. What if the resurrection didn't happen? What if Jesus didn't come out of the tomb? What are the implications of that? What if it already happened and we missed it, right? What if this thing is, is just, we're misinterpreting this whole thing? What if it was never intended to happen? These are the questions they have. Same questions you might have when wrestling about this event, this resurrection. But Paul, he says something that I think is really interesting. He says that if the resurrection did not happen, the event that N.T. Wright pointed to and said, when this thing happened, if it did not happen, then this is all a waste of time. Me standing up here and preaching the God, waste of time. It's useless. Those are his words, not mine. You would still be stuck in your sins. See, Paul says that there's weight here, that this is a moment that changed everything. I mentioned earlier, the time was on this sort of linear pathway from a beginning to going someplace. And yet somehow, in some way, it gets interrupted, interrupted by the resurrection of Jesus. All human history now pivots because the tomb is empty and there is no body found. I'm gonna say that the resurrection changed everything 2,000 years ago. And here's the deal. When I say that, it can sound like it's hype. You ever been complimented by somebody, but you know it didn't mean anything? Come on, I'm not the only one, right? I don't want my words to be empty. I don't want them to be hype. I'm not trying to pump you up and make you feel good. 
But Paul says it here, it's, this is all useless and a waste of time if the tomb is not empty, if Jesus had not come back alive. And if he did, then that means everything about our life is different. The way we see everything has changed. So my hope in the next however many minutes, 18 minutes and 48 seconds, is to unpack the practicality of the resurrection of Jesus into our life. When Jesus came into the world, he brought what he called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of which God rules and reigns, right? It's his economy, his way of doing things, his value. The gospel, the term means good news. The Romans had a gospel. They called it the gospel of Pax Romana. And they had people go out and preach to the ends of the Roman Empire the good news that Caesar is Lord. What you know, if you have ever lived in an empire, is only good news for the people in power. Nothing has changed, but Jesus arrives on the scene at the same time and he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of heaven. The good news that there is a king, his name is Jesus. He has not come to wield power over, but to liberate the oppressed, to set the story right again. I want to ruin the story for you, but this is one of the reasons why he's executed, because he's a threat to the power structures that be. But Jesus comes and he embodies the kingdom of heaven. Everywhere he goes, he says, the kingdom of heaven is near and miracles break out and people are healed because in God's economy, that is the way things operate. I said earlier, creation, God created you good. He created you without sickness, death, or pain. The story spirals out of control, but Jesus brings the future into the present. He brings the future hope that we have as Christians, what will later be called the resurrection into the present. And he starts to heal and he starts to free people and he starts to build an entire people with a different identity in a place. That's what he's up to. He's bringing the future to the presence. This is why he's able to do this because of the resurrection. See, the resurrection did not just vindicate him. He was who he said he is. It actually changes everything to the sense that now um, the future hope that the Christian have is available to us all in the present. It's all messed up. Time, space, matter, everything changes. Now, if you're like me, you look around the world and you say, okay, but it doesn't look like the kingdom of heaven has made it here, right? It doesn't look like God's rule and reign has been established here. And that's because we live in um, this strange space called the now and not yet. Can you say now and not yet? Now and not yet. The technical theological term for this is called inaugurated eschatology. But what it means is that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom in the world now. But in the future, it will be fully made known. So we get to experience the kingdom of heaven now and not yet. There's a future reality waiting for us. More on that. Let's dive into it. Verse 51, Paul says this, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What Paul is saying here, he's talking about the resurrection of believers. My understanding of the gospel for a long time was Jesus died for your sins so you could go to heaven when you die. And that's true. It's just not the whole story. I have a four-year-old, her name is Isla, and she recently um, became aware of what death is. I don't know where this came from, probably an older sister or something like that, but she became aware and she became afraid, terrified to die. So we would have these long conversations about it. And she's a feeler. Anyone know, like anyone a feeler in the room like me? Rationale is just out the window. It's just, she feels it deeply. Now I have a seven-year-old who uh, is not as much like that. She's very rational. She's very logical, justice orientated. And um, my daughter Isla is crying and she's sad about death. And my daughter Scarlett walks up to her and says, Isla, why are you afraid to die? You do know that after we die, we go to heaven and then we get a new body and the whole world gets changed. (laughs) Come on, right? Oh, I'm excited to see what God does with her. (laughs) She's awesome. Our faith has to move beyond. We got a ticket out of hell to go to heaven when we die. We are part of this massive unfolding story. And what Paul is saying here, he's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. See, like when I walk up the stairs, my knees, like the check knee lights, they remind me that this body is wearing out. Like (laughs) some of you got the check knee light thing. That's good, right? You like that? No matter how much I take care of myself, no matter how much I work out, no matter how vegan or whatever paleo or thing you eat, No matter how much you do, this thing is going to wear out. And at the end of it wearing out, we will die. But the Christian knows that this is not the end of the story. And what Paul says here, man, it's so good. It means that if this isn't the end of the story and there's a future where I get a new body that doesn't wear out, there is no check knee light, right? There is no sickness, no pandemic can touch it. Then where, oh, death is your sting? Death gets emptied of its power. There's no victory of death anymore. That's what the resurrection does. That's what I say when it changes everything. If death, which most of us are afraid of, is emptied of its power, then what has power over us anymore? So Paul is encouraging these believers to lean into that. And I want to encourage you to lean into that. The last 20 months, I've never seen more people so afraid of death. And church, hear me, the world needs to know the good news that this doesn't have to be the end of the story, right? And they need to see that in us. They need to see that we are not afraid. That doesn't mean that we're haphazard, we're not responsible, and that doesn't mean we don't grieve it either. Listen, do you remember when Jesus's friend Lazarus died? Jesus wept. 
Because death is not the way it's supposed to be. God created us. Remember the story, creation, fall, redemption, renewal of all things. Creation, you were not supposed to die. This was not the direction God wanted you. This was the, the result of what's called the fall. And it's something God is sozoing, delivering us out of. And so it should feel foreign. It should feel alien. It should not feel right. Because it's not. Jesus deals with death, empties it of its power. We get to be a people to show the world that there is hope beyond this life. That's good news. Am I right? It's good news. Now, I've got more good news for you. Romans 8, 22. Paul says this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it patiently." And this gives us hope because it reminds us the story is actually going someplace. Paul uses the term whole creation is groaning. You know, the Greek word for whole literally means whole. (laughs) It means all. It means everything. Down to the tiniest atom, the furthest star in the furthest galaxy away from us in this universe is some way craving at its core Jesus to make everything right again. I don't know what the new Mars is going to look like, but I'm excited to be there. Right? Our future is not just a resurrected body. Our future is a renewed earth and heavens. Right? This world is broken. We see it, but it's beautiful as well. We see that it lives in this strange dichotomy of both. One day, war, sickness, disease, politics, injustice, all of these broken things, natural disasters, these broken things that wreak havoc on us will be a thing of the past. Jesus will come and renew, not just this earth that we get to inhabit for all eternity, but it all in some way, shape, and form. All of creation. And Paul says that we are the first fruits. Jesus was the first fruit, and then we get to be the first fruits after that. What do I mean by that? Jesus was the first picture of what a resurrected body looks like, right? We see him doing weird things, like he still enjoys food, but somehow moves through walls and all these crazy things. He's there, he's present, he's real, and yet he's other. Jesus is the first fruit of what's to come for us, But we, as we get to live with one another, we get to be the first fruits of what's to come and how we love one another and care for one another. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. What he's talking about is on the backdrop of our suffering, of our pain, of all the things, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, check knee light, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul says the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the evidence, right? That resurrection happened, resurrection of Jesus happened, and that resurrection and renewal of all things will come. We live now with the presence of the Spirit in our midst. And yes, we have these desires to sort of wage war inside of us, but the fact that they wage war is evidence that we have not just given ourselves to the desires of our flesh, but that the Spirit is renewing us and changing us and inviting us into something greater. Now, Paul is not making light of our suffering. This is the same letter that he writes early on that the church in Corinth has pretty much spun him down into a mental health crisis, right? He, he writes at one point, we are pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, not abound, abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. You know, that 90s worship song. That's where it comes from. He's not making light of your suffering or your struggles. He's just saying we see these things in a different way. Like what is 75 or 100 years in the grand scheme of eternity? 500,000 years from now, when we're floating around the new Mars or whatever we're doing, these pain, the pain, the struggle, it'll be like a blip of a memory of God's grace and goodness. That's what he's saying. And that's why I say it changes everything because it begins to change the way we see even the suffering in our life, even the pain. Paul's words are that they're light and momentary, but they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We'll get to that in a minute, how God takes these things that we're doing and somehow brings them into eternity. But before we do, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. No other service got this. This is just for you. It's because you have nowhere to go after this, so. <laughs> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Somehow, the future has come into the present in you. Somehow, the age to come, where all things are right, comes to you now, and you get to be that to the world around you. I was talking to Jamie on Thursday, and she was reminding me of a, a great metaphor for this. I didn't get it in at any of the services, but I'm going now. Disneyland, I've been. The first time I took my kids to Disneyland was amazing. Right? I had the privilege to be able to do that. But I knew what Disneyland was like because I'd been there. I knew the smell, the tastes, the sounds, the rides. The I knew all of those things because I myself had been there, but my kids hadn't. So I could tell them about it, right? I could pull it up online and show them all the things, but there's nothing like them showing up and walking through those gates on the first time. If you've ever had the privilege of that opportunity, you know what I'm saying. This is kind of like a metaphor for how we get to operate in the world. We get to know what new creation is like in our lives, in our relationships, and how we live. We get to show people what that is, but then invite them to do it themselves, right? You are new creation. You are the future. Come into the present. I know it's weird, but stick with me here for a second. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now, after 57 verses on the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of our bodies, and the renewal of all things to come, Paul says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. So Paul gets practical. Paul says that you can be immovable in the chaos of this world. If you see your life, if you live within this story, it doesn't mean it won't hurt. It doesn't mean you won't be sad. It doesn't mean things aren't going to be a struggle. It just means you can stand firm and nothing can move you. What does it mean to always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? Well, I'll tell you what it's not limited to. And that's me. It's not the worship team or Jamie or anybody you see around here. The work of the Lord is not limited to this. I'm going to give a broad definition to the work of the Lord. It is knowing Jesus and helping people know him too. All of you can do the work of the Lord. Every one of you. Paul says that participate in that work of the Lord and know that when you do, your labor is not in vain. You may be a designer at Nike. That can be the work of the Lord. You may be an engineer at Intel and your job title and the thing you actually do with microchips, I will never understand or even be able to tell someone else what it is, but that can be the work of the Lord. Waking up four or five times in the middle of the night, cleaning, wiping bottoms and changing diapers and no one sees it, but you're doing it unto another, self-sacrificially loving someone else. Work of the Lord. Maybe you're out creating order out of the chaos in this world. You work sanitation services, you pick up garbage and you know, you only get a phone call when you miss that one house, right? No one appreciates what you do until you don't do it, but Jesus sees it. It's not labor in vain. You hear what I'm saying here? Like no one sees you students when you don't cheat on the test. You just get caught when you do. But Jesus sees you, right? Don't cheat on the test. Your labor is not in vain. I don't know how he does it. I really don't. But I see God as like this cosmic conductor. (laughs) It's a metaphor, so hear me on this. Who stands outside of time and space and somehow weaves together every single one of our stories for some greater eternal purpose. I don't know how he does it. Listen, if every one of us in the room were a part of God's symphony and we all had a musical instrument and a note to play, I would be the recorder, you would be like the violin or something beautiful, right? We may only have one measure, but I'm going to play that measure to the best of my ability, right? I may only get a few notes, but I'm going to play it to the best of my ability. And and get this, we don't get to see right now how it all fits into this grand symphony, but we will one day. And when we do, we will see that even the hard moments of our life, somehow God wove those things together And they found themselves into this new future that we have. They were not wasted. Again, I don't know how they do, but I know that they do.
And so that changes the way you see those even mundane and frustrating things in your life as if no one sees them, God does, and they carry forward into the age to come. Which means this, and this is where I'm going to land the plane. Your life is not an accident or a mistake that God designed you for a purpose. It may just be one note or two notes in the grand scheme of things, but see that you are a part of this incredible story that God is writing. And he invites you to play that part and to know that even the small things in your life are no mistake. So I'm going to give you a gift. That gift is this, I'm done. (laughs) But the second, I'd like to pray over you. We have this thing here called the benediction, just a prayer blessing. If you want to, um, would you stand with me and just open up your hands and posture to receive? And I want to pray over you. May you be a people grounded in this incredible story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. May you be a people who live with hope a sign and a symbol to the world around them that there is more than this life. And may you be a people who see that even the smallest things in your life, the ones that seem insignificant, matter to God and matter to the eternal story that he is writing. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 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 Well, hey, so happy that you guys are here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for bearing with us. Uh, Hang out. Talk to each other. Um, Enjoy your day. There's a great team of people at the Info Center. We'd love to connect with you, answer any questions you might have. Love you guys.